Hi there, my name is Brad. Welcome to Omnibody Healthcare. In this episode, and this is actually the first episode of a brand new series that I've just started doing, in which I'm going to take a piece of research, a full article um, on a different topic, obviously every time, and I'm going to break it down to you and talk through all the findings that um, I find most interesting for me and hopefully for you as well, okay? So in this episode, we're going to talk about deep gluteal space problems, uh, which will include piriformis syndrome, issue of femoral impingement and sciatic nerve release, okay, among some of the things that we're going to cover, right? So what I've done here, I'm going to use this article which I found on the National Library of Medicine. Uh, before we start, obviously I need to uh, acknowledge the uh, the people who created the article and the research uh, itself, so uh, Luis Perez Caro, uh, Moises Fernandez Hernando, Luis uh, Ceresal, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing this uh, wrong, uh, you know, my Spanish isn't great. Um, Ivan Sainz Navarro, Ana Alfonso Fernandez, and Alexander Ortiz Castillo. Okay, so these guys um, and obviously others have done a great job in um, talking about something that's um, quite underdiagnosed as a condition. So we're talking about DGS or deep gluteal syndrome. Most of you probably heard of it because this research came out in 2016, even though a lot of people could have missed it. And the aim of of it is to prove to you and give you evidence on um, you know deep gluteal syndrome as a condition and the difference that it has to piriformis syndrome and essentially class piriformis syndrome as a type of a subtype or a subgroup to uh, the deep gluteal syndrome as a whole okay because uh, a lot of the injuries uh, as, as you're going to learn from here as well a lot of the injuries that occur in the deep gluteal space uh, as a region in the body will essentially be connected to piriformis syndrome because that is one of the uh, conditions that's been recently searched heavily throughout the years and you're going to find a lot of material online. There's so much stuff there, okay? Whereas some of the other conditions that we're going to talk about here um, haven't really been researched as much and there's not really as much information uh, and you're going to find out why, okay? So there's a specific reason why that is. On the right-hand side of my screen here, you can see the notes that I've took. So I essentially spent a couple of hours going through the research paper and I kind of highlighted uh, things that I find interesting for myself and I thought that I'm going to discuss. At the same time, I pulled out these notes on the right-hand side, and um, obviously, um, you're going to find these notes underneath um, you know, the video. So without further ado, let's go into the uh, research paper. So the deep gluteal syndrome is an underdiagnosed entity characterized by pain and or dysesthesias in the buttock area, hip or posterior thigh, and or radicular pain due to a non-discogenic sciatic nerve entrapment in the subgluteal space. What does this mean? In short, we're talking about uh, a condition which is occurring uh, not due to a disc-related injury. So we're not talking about a or a herniation here or any other type of uh, you know injuries that occur around the nerve roots and around the disc so essentially all the conditions that we're going to cover in this uh, in, in this paper are going to be conditions that are creating injuries in the um, deep gluteal space due to compression either muscular or or fibrous. This will be another thing that we're going to look, uh, look at. Um, the different muscles that can create the compression, essentially anatomical relations between the sciatic nerve and the muscle tissue that you can find in this area, which will be quite interesting because some of you have probably heard the different kind of positions of the sciatic nerve that it can kind of have in the uh, around, around the piriformis, really. That's the best word. Um, you're going to see that, what I mean, in a second. So essentially, uh, as this little highlighted text says here, we're going to look at piriformis syndrome, uh, which essentially has nothing to do with some of these other conditions. So again, I've got them here in my notes. So we've got fibrous bands, which will be one of the conditions that we look at. Uh, if you haven't heard of that, then you're going to learn about it later on in the video. Piriformis syndrome, obviously. We're going to talk about obturator internus and gemellus complex syndrome. So these will be the muscles uh, known as obturator internus, gemellus inferior and gemellus superior. Uh, these are the muscles that we're going to look at and essentially how they connect to injuries that occur in this area. Uh, Quadratus femoris or the issue of femoral pathology. Um, we're going to talk about that as well. And lastly, we're going to finish with hamstring conditions. My aim with uh, dissecting this research paper is 
is to help you understand the differences between all these conditions and help you understand where like each one is like sits you know in terms of in relation to the other ones so dgs or deep gluteal syndrome is a under-recognized and multifactorial pathology that's obvious because there's so many uh, different injuries that i've just mentioned a couple of seconds ago that essentially are going to have similar symptoms by the end of the video um, you're going to kind of you're going to see how i've classed everything but all these things that i've just mentioned here a couple of seconds ago uh, that you can see on the right hand side these are going to be the subtypes or subgroups of deep gluteal space uh, syndrome because they can occur uh, separately from that and they can have different uh, different symptoms there's going to be a different cause for all of these injuries okay which is the most important things how do we determine the different causes and you know so for some of these injuries you wouldn't it would be very difficult for you to determine uh, exactly whether it's them causing it because let's keep in mind that what these people have done here they've actually dissected cadavers you know and a lot of you are probably not gonna do this um but it's just interesting to know like with dissection what people uh, uncover okay in the first chapter of this uh, research uh, breakdown we're going to talk about the muscles included in the deep gluteal space because if we say deep gluteal space what are the muscles that you kind of you come up with yourself right so pause the video take a, a, a pen and a piece of paper and just write down all the muscles that you think would be a part uh, of this region okay now obviously uh, you can do that uh, optionally so it's not necessary to do it but if you've done it let's try and have a look at some of the muscles that um, we're going to talk about mainly in this area okay now the muscles that i've got uh, highlighted for me will be the piriformis obviously we've got the superior gemellus muscle the obturator internus inferior gemellus and quadratus femoris these will be the main muscles in the deep gluteal space that we're going to look at this doesn't mean that there aren't others Okay, so there are other muscles obviously that you have in the area, um, but these are the main ones that relate to the injuries that I mentioned a couple of uh, you know minutes ago. Okay, uh, obviously we're going to cover the actions of each of these muscles, uh, and you're going to see what these abbreviations here mean. So for those of you listening on the podcast, I've got uh, a couple of kind of abbreviations uh, you know next to each of these muscles that essentially will make it a bit easier for you to remember what their functions are in the research paper you have a bit of a uh, kind of uh, description of uh, what the deep gluteal space is and if, if i haven't mentioned this already i'm going to have a link to the research paper uh, for you either under the youtube video or in the podcast information or under the video if you're a member of the bulletproof series so you can just uh, read it yourself okay uh, so the subgluteal space is the cellular and fatty tissue located between the middle and deep gluteal aponeurosis layers okay so beneath the gluteus maximus this is what's interesting here so essentially if we switch the screen now to my anatomy model as you can see what i've done there i've actually removed the gluteus maximus so let's hide on this side as well and there we go we've got the deep gluteal space now what we need to do though we need to be a bit more specific as to the area so within the space superior to inferior which means from top to bottom we're looking at the piriformis superior gemellus obturator internus inferior gemellus and quadratus femoris these are the muscles that are included okay so if you included these if you were one of the people who paused the video a couple of minutes ago and you wrote these muscles then good job to you okay uh, now let's have a look at an image that uh, i kind of opened up so we can have a better visual perspective on the uh, actual um, deep gluteal space okay here it is uh, this is a, an image that i found on google um, so basically you've got this this circle is essentially the deep gluteal space um, the gluteus minimus is not really a part of what we're talking about here but we've got the piriformis which is on the top here right so the biggest one of all of them and you're gonna understand why it's the biggest one uh, and the most complex uh, you've got sciatic nerve underneath it which will be something that we're going to talk about in a second as well. The position of the sciatic nerve in, re in relation to the piriformis, that's very interesting. You've got the uh, gemellus superior, which is this one here. You've got the obturator internus in the middle, and you've got the gemellus inferior. And obviously at the bottom here, you've got the quadratus femoris, okay, which is uh, a muscle that is going to relate to a separate condition, um, okay, that we're going to talk about later. So this is the deep gluteal space, and this is the sacrotuberous ligaments uh, here as well, um, connecting on the uh, ischium. So down here, we've got some information on the uh, different muscles. So uh, first of all, talking about the piriformis muscle, uh, this muscle arises from the ventrolateral surface of the S2, S4 sacrovertebral gluteal surface of the ilium and sacroiliac joint capsule. It runs laterally through the greater sciatic 
foramen becomes tendinous and inserts to the piriformis fossa at the medial aspect of the gray trochanter of the femur. Okay, so often partially blended with the common tendon of the obturator and gemelli complex, which is very interesting. So the tendons of these muscles, these four muscles, because the, gem, uh, the, the gemelli complex means both of the superior and inferior gemellus muscles. So both all these four muscles uh, can have a uh, blended kind of um, tendon. All these injuries, when they occur, the symptoms that you, you can feel as a patient uh, and the results that you can get from testing as a practitioner, a therapist or PT or whatever, can resemble each other. Okay, so this is what's interesting. How are we going to differentiate between all these injuries, right? Um, so that's things that we're going to talk about. Um, so we've got the obviously the branches of the L5S1 and S2 spinal nerves innervate the piriformis muscle. Uh, this is interesting here. This is actually what one of the key points that we need to look at. There are six possible anatomical relationships between the sciatic nerve and the piriformis muscle which means there are six different positions that the piriformis and the sciatic nerve um, can essentially have between one another, okay? So obviously the most common type, the most common position is going to be uh, position A here, which we've got, which is essentially the sciatic nerve passing below the piriformis muscle. So it's this black text, uh, black highlighted text with white letters here, and it's essentially this first image. So essentially, well, this as well. So you got the piriformis, you got sciatic nerve, uh, superior gemellus, obturator internus, inferior gemellus. They've missed the classical bomb here, but you don't, you don't, fMRI is not, not lumborum. That's up here. Uh, you don't really need it. And the sacrotuberous ligament. So this is the main, the most common position of, of relationship between the piriformis and the and sciatic nerve, where the sciatic nerve essentially passes underneath the piriformis. And you're probably asking yourself, how, how can, how do they know which relationship is most common? Again, they have dissected cadavers. So I'm going to mention this in a second, but you can see here that there's been, in, in one study particularly, there's been 120 cadavers and in another one, there was 130 cadavers. That's a lot of cadavers. A lot of these dissections, there's patterns that are discovered and that's how research kind of gives us evidence, right? So position A, like we said, the piriformis muscle passes underneath. Position B, You've got the, the uh, divided nerve, which is the sciatic nerve being uh, divided, passes through and below the muscle. So essentially, the uh, you can see it here, position B. This is a part of the sciatic nerve which pierces the piriformis, and another part, the, the bigger part of it, goes underneath it. So it's essentially, you can see these fibers here of the sciatic nerve on part A. Instead of these fibers coming together, one of them detaches and passes through the piriformis. Now, a lot of you are probably going to ask, like, why is this happening? And I have no idea. <laughs> These guys have no idea as well. It's just uh, some sort of a, a anomaly, if you can call it that way, uh, or it's just it's just uh, the way it is. Okay. So there's no there's no explanation why that happens. But uh, based on the research, what you're going to find here, and I've got that in in my um, notes here as well. Uh, the most common sciatic nerve and piriformis relation in 120 cadavers dissected, uh, this is a research paper from Beeson and Anson. Um, number one, 84% will be undivided nerve passing below the piriformis muscle. And number two, 12%, divisions of the sciatic nerve uh, essentially through and below the muscle. So point A and point B or relation, relationship A and relationship B are the most common in both studies here because I've got another one which, which was also referenced in the, in this one. Uh, so, uh, Piscina or I'm not sure how you kind of say that name, but uh, in 130 cadavers, um, same results. 78%, uh, undivided nerve passed below the muscle. 21% divided nerve passed through and below the muscle. Okay, so this seems to be a pattern. So we've got 250 cadavers giving us very, very similar results here, essentially. And obviously in very small circumstances, you've got some of these other, uh, there's four more uh, relationships that we're gonna cover as well. So uh, relationship three or C, uh, a divided nerve passes above and below. Uh, the muscle. So essentially, again, the sciatic nerve splits, but this time, instead of piercing the piriformis, it actually goes uh, above it as, as a fiber. So essentially the same division as this, but the main, the main part of it, the bulk of it passes underneath the piriformis. Okay. And obviously you can kind of, it makes sense now based on the pictures. You got uh, D, which is uh, relationship number four. The full sciatic nerve pierces the piriformis, which is a very rare condition uh, and very, very unpleasant. 
you know, imagine that kind of nerve essentially living its life in between the fibers of the piriformis muscle. Okay, uh, relation number uh, five, E, you've got uh, above and, and, and through, basically. So here we had, uh, you know, through and below, and now we've got above and through. Okay, so essentially E is similar to uh, B, and um, again, you've got a couple of fibers that go between the fibers of the piriformis, and fibers, some of the fibers of the sciatic nerve go above the piriformis. Uh, and then finally, we've got probably for me the most interesting one, two piriformis muscles. <laughs> and between those two piriformis muscles, you've got the full sciatic nerve, all, the, all, all of its fibers going in, in between them. So essentially, this is a combination between A, this is very rare, and a brand new kind of condition where what, what this AP kind of means here is like an accessory piriformis muscle with its own tendon. So this piriformis has its own tendon, which makes it a separate muscle or an accessory to the main piriformis, which is crazy. Okay, so imagine having two piriformises, right? So this is, these are the six relations that you can have when it comes to, uh, you know, the piriformis position. So piriformis syndrome as a condition, we're going to look at it later on as well, is going to relate to these six different positions, uh, you know, relations between the nerve and the muscle, because the, obviously you can have symptoms of piriformis syndrome uh, because you've got a, a portion of the sciatic nerve passing through the, the fibers of, of the piriformis and the fibers of the piriformis are essentially inflamed or tight or overused and that could increase your chances of getting piriformis syndrome. Uh, you know, hopefully not, like nothing like this happens, you know, nothing happens to you. There's not really much you can do about it. But for example, in, in uh, position or relation number four, where the sciatic nerve goes through the piriformis, that's even worse, you know. So this is all going to relate to piriformis syndrome. And I've also got all of these relations here in my notes. So uh, when when you're finished listening to the kind of whatever you're, if you're watching a video or listening to the podcast, you can essentially look at all these six different positions here. So A, B, C, D, E, and F. Okay, uh, and obviously a couple of notes from the uh, research papers that I mentioned. And now we're getting to the function, so the anatomical function of the all these muscles. So let's talk about the piriformis because it's the most complex in terms of function. So the piriformis muscle potentially plays a role not only in external rotation of the hip, but also in restricting posterior translation of the femoral head when the joint is flexed due to the shift towards a more posterior po position of this muscle with respect to the hip joints in hip flexion. Uh, hip flexion, adduction, and internal rotation stretch the piriformis muscle and cause narrowing of the space between the inferior border of the piriformis, superior gemellus, and sacrotuberous ligaments. These are all kind of things that are interesting and are going to make more sense later on. Um, what's inter interesting here as well, after leaving the piriformis muscle, the sciatic nerve runs posteriorly to the obturator and gemelli complex and femoris muscle. It passes between the ischial tuberosity and the greater trochanter lying close to the posterior capsule of the hip. This is interesting because as you can see, the sciatic nerve uh, will move on towards the obturator and, and the gemelli complex. Essentially, injuries that can occur to the post uh, piriformis um, itself can have connections to all the other four muscles. Uh, and obviously, we're going to talk about neurological connections later on. And and what, which, what nerve, you know, innervates what. That's also interesting. Under normal conditions, the sciatic nerve is able to stretch and glide in order to accommodate moderate strain or compression associated with joint movement, which is obvious, right? So even though you've got these kind of positions of the nerve, so let's just say that, you know, if, if the nerve passes through, you know, the piriformis, you're not really necessarily going to feel pain only because you've got this condition, you know, or a relation. It's not even a condition. It's just the way your anatomy is. This doesn't mean that you're going to have pain uh, under normal conditions, which means that if the piriformis is, you know, kind of not inflamed or it's optimally contracting and, and obviously lengthening, uh, if all these other three muscles and fourth one down here, if they're working optimally, if the joint isn't restricted, then this is not going to cause you a problem. This becomes a problem, obviously, when you've got the inflammation or problems with the other or the fibrous bands we're going to talk about in, in a couple of minutes as well, or any of the other conditions that we mentioned earlier in the video. Now, before we move into the neurological uh, connections here, and obviously we're gonna, I'm going to talk about the nerves um, that essentially innervate each of these muscles and what the, uh, which muscles these nerves innervate and what sensory function they've got, I want to talk about the actions of the muscles, which is also interesting. So the piriformis muscle um, is the most complex out of these five 
And the actions that we got here are external rotation, abduction, and extension of the hip joint, and also stabilization of the hip joint. And just like I mentioned a couple of seconds ago, during hip flexion, you've got restricting posterior translation of the femoral head when the joint is flexed. As well as, this is something that's not mentioned in this study, um, what I've also read in different studies is that during hip flexion, the piriformis muscle becomes a media rotator. So if you can imagine like when you hip, uh, when you flex your hip and you uh, push your foot out and the knee in, that's media rotation and that's actually created by the piriformis muscle. Okay, so it's a very, very complex muscle if you ask me. Uh, but for now, we're just sticking to its kind of, its main functions because I've also kind of, I also had a look at some other uh, studies here, which I'm also going to um, link underneath this video. I was looking at this, so piriformis electromyography activity during prone and sideline hip joint movement and what this was kind of talking about and I'm probably going to cover it in a separate video because it's it's its own research paper, um, you know, but this was talking about like which position um, of the hip uh, essentially will give us the most um, activity with the piriformis or the most activation, okay, so, but I'm not going to talk about it now because it's going to send us down a different rabbit hole, so we'll kind of do a, a separate video on that. Um, moving on to the other muscles, superior gemellus, uh, you've got the external rotation of the thigh, abduction and extension of the hip joint. So let's kind of move the um, screen onto these muscles here, or actually you can even see them uh, on my model, like the anatomy model here. So we talked about the piriformis first of all, now we're talking about the superior gemellus muscle here, so on the top. Okay, so like I said, external rotation of the thigh, abduction and extension of the hip joint. So I've got some abbreviations here, um, which essentially states uh, ERAB, so E-R-A-B, which stands for external rotation, uh, abduction, basically, and uh, I should probably put uh, extension as well. <laughs> That's probably something that I should have done earlier, but I've just noticed that I missed the E, so it kind of becomes, uh, and we've got... That here, that's fine. Um, so we've got uh, extension at, at the bottom. So uh, external rotation, abduction, and extension of the hip joint, superior gemellus, obturator internus, exactly the same. External rotation, abduction, and extension of the hip joint, inferior gemellus, you guessed it, exactly the same. So we've got irabi, uh, irabi, irabi on all these three muscles as well as the piriformis. However, the piriformis has a lot more going on there. Like, and obviously it functions as a stabilizer. And just a quick note here, the piriformis muscle and the pectineus, which is a part of the adductors, are very strong hip stabilizers. Uh, so that's something that I just kind of popped into my mind. I just decided to share it with you. Obviously the pectineus being an adductor and having nothing to do with the deep gluteal space. <laughs> so that's another story. Uh, and finally, culatus femoris. Um, you're probably, you're probably thinking like why, you know, this should, should probably be the same, but it's not. It actually creates, well, first of all, external rotation, which is the same, but a deduction. So it adducts the hip joints and it doesn't create extension. So in a way, these muscles, well, these four are uh, muscles that support each other. They are agonists, you know, they kind of help each other. Obviously, the these three, so the gemellus, uh, the gemelli complex and the obturator internus, they are, uh, you know, a, a secondary support system for the piriformis muscle, but they are strong muscles on their own as well. Um, but the cuirass femoris is also uh, a support muscle here, but at the same time, it's an antagonist. So it will create, uh, you know, an antagonistic movement when these are um, creating the abduction. This muscle is going to stretch, and when this muscle is creating adduction, these muscles are going to essentially do the opposite because they are abductors. This is what's interesting here: is the the dynamics so deep in the in, in the in the deep gluteal space, and how these muscles that are essentially so close to each other. If you look at them like this, you wouldn't think about that. But they are, they do create different movements, which is, which is very interesting for me specifically. Now, the, the fact that the cuirassomoris, uh, is different to the other muscles, uh, will make more sense later. And essentially, this is going to be, uh, related to an injury, which will be separate from an injury that relates to these three, which will be separate from an injury that relates to the, this one. So we talked about piriformis syndrome. And these are muscular, musculoskeletal injuries that we're talking about here, uh, relating to like the muscle tissue. So piriformis syndrome. Here we're gonna have the, uh, gemelli and obturator internus syndrome. And then here we're gonna have the issue of femoral, 
this function that I mentioned in the beginning of the video, so if you got the issue of moral pathology here, uh, relates to the Kraus femoris. Uh, but I'm going to explain why that is later when we get to those pathologies. Okay, now let's continue with the neurological function of uh, the nerves that we've got in the area, that, because that's also interesting. Uh, knowing which nerves uh, are essentially a part of the deep gluteal space and are most important is also something that, you know, I always keep in mind, because, you know, for people like me and some of you, essentially, knowing the muscles is not enough, because that doesn't really give you as much information. But having knowledge of this, the sensory and motor function of the nerves is actually more important because if you know, for example, like which nerve innervates which muscles, then if you have an injury relating to, uh, you know, a certain muscle and it's not being able to, you know, if you're not able to rehab it with kind of the normal mus muscular related exercises or, and techniques, then it's, it's always good to look at the nerve tissue. That's something that I tend to look at first, to be honest, because it can gives me a lot of, uh, it saves me a lot of time. Um, so, and the sensory function is important because a lot of these nerves are going to have a sensory function rather than a motor one, whereas some of the most complex, uh, the more complex nerves, like the sciatic nerve, for example, is going to have both a motor and a sensory function. So we've got the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve. So I say this as if it, it will make sense to any of you, like to, to those of you who've never really seen this nerve visually. So I always like to do a visual representation of what I talk about as well. But before I do that, we've got sensory function. Like I said, some of these nerves are gonna have a sensory uh, motor function or some of them are gonna have one of each. Innervation of the gluteal region, perineum, and posterior thigh and popliteal fossa. So gluteal region, obviously the area uh, here, the perineum at the bottom, the popliteal fossa, which is essentially behind the knee, right? Uh, and essentially we've got the posterior thigh, which is the hamstring area. So what we need to do, we need to find this muscle. So this, I'm going to go over here, copy this and pop it in the search. And straight away, we've got the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve and let's fade everything around it. And you should be able to see it there. So essentially this is the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve going all the way down here with its little branches. So like we talked about the perineum area here, the deep gluteal, like the gluteal area, posterior thigh and popliteal fossa behind the knee. So this is the uh, posterior like cutaneous femoral nerve here. Okay, uh, we've got superior gluteal nerve, which is very int uh, important and interesting. This is a nerve that innervates the gluteus medius, the minimus and the tensor fascia lata. So I want you to notice how the, um, the gluteus medius and minimus are actually uh, innervated by a different nerve to the gluteus maximus, which would be the inferior gluteal nerve. So essentially, um, the superior gluteal nerve is very easy to find. It's, it's basically uh, a nerve that kind of, this is actually, this one here is the inferior and you can't see it, but it should be one of these that kind of goes in, in here. There we go. So if I fade everything around, you can see it. So the superior gluteal nerve, let's fade again is this one here. So obviously you can see it coming out of the uh, the body of what's eventually to be the sciatic nerve. But all these little branches, this is your um, superior gluteal nerve innervating the gluteus medius, the minimus underneath it, and the, the TFL on the side. These are the muscles that are innervated here. So this is why whenever I you know, work with gl uh, the, um, gluteus medius injuries. I always look at the TFL and the gluteus minimus because as you can see, these three muscles are innervated by the same nerve, which means that there is something going, there's some, something could be going on with the nerve itself. So it's never just a gluteus medius injury or just a TFL injury or just a TFL tightness. It could be uh, a whole combination between these three and making it a lot more complex than you would think. And then, like we said a couple of seconds ago, uh, the, the nerve that innervates the, um, the gluteus maximus will be this one here. This is the inferior gluteal nerve. So don't worry about these ones descending down. We don't want to talk about them now, but fade everything around. Uh, and you can see, essentially, this nerve is kind of going through the fibers of the gluteus maximus, just like this one is going underneath the gluteus medius and some of it kind of piercing it and stuff like that. So, um, and as you can see, the gluteus maximus has its own, um, you know, neuro like neuro kind of um, innervation because it's a big muscle. It requires a lot of function. Um, so 
uh, and again, this makes more sense as well because a lot of people can activate their gluteus medius in the TFL. The TFL tends to, tends to overwork. At the same time, people tend to struggle with gluteus maximus activation. And just because you've got an overactive TFL and a partially active gluteus medius doesn't mean that you're going to have an active gluteus maximus because it has, it has a different nerve signal. Okay, so this is what's interesting here, like just because, for, and again, just because an exercise is made for a muscle, like for example, you say this exercise is, the, let's take the, the squat, this should engage your glutes, it doesn't mean it will, okay, so you need to work on essentially improving your motor uh, control and your proprioception over these muscles by, you know, focusing and understanding the movements, you know, understanding exercises is what will help you make an exercise a lot more specific, a lot more focused on what you're trying to achieve, so these are all things that people tend to forget about, and that's why I wanted to mention it. Okay, moving on to the smaller nerves here. So we got nerve to the obturator internus, uh, which is the gives you motor innervation uh, of the superior gemellus and obturator internus. So the muscles that we just mentioned, the superior gemellus, obturator internus, and the inferior gemellus, they're gonna have a nerve that essentially supplies them. Which again, all of these are gonna be a part of the, uh, the lumbar sacral plexus. Um, so they are connected in a way, but it just shows you that like why these different muscles um, can have like different innervations and what, what this means is that they can have different injuries relating to them on a neurological basis, okay? So, and then again, down here, we've got the nerve to the cruas femoris muscle, uh, which is, again, easy to find because it's kind of superficial. So this is it here, cruas femoris uh, nerve. So it's tiny, as you can see, and it kind of goes into the cruas femoris, which is here. And what's interesting here is that the cruas femoris uh, nerve um, essentially will innervate both to the cuirass femoris and the uh, inferior gemellus, which is not innervated by the nerve to the obturator internus. Okay, this is something interesting. Uh, again, the pudental uh, nerve, which is a bit more popular than the other ones that I've just mentioned, so innervates the perineal muscles, which is, again, the muscles of, of the uh, the perineum, very important. And essentially, talking to, uh, you know, women who've given birth, uh, those muscles for you will be very weak after and obviously because they've kind of been spread over a long period of time so this is why it's, it's very important for you to do work for them especially you know after giving birth or even during sometimes there's specific exercises that, that are very good um, the external urethral sphincter those are again muscles of the perineum the external anal sphincter again very important muscles and sensory innervation to the perineum and external genitalia so if you're someone who actually has symptoms of loss of sensory function, if you, for example, don't feel anything you know, underneath there uh, in those areas, we, this means that you may have an, uh, an issue with the pudental nerve. Fade others. Okay, so you can see exactly where it goes. So that's the right one, that's the left one. So it literally covers all these, so the uh, elevator ani muscles, which are underneath the sphincter muscles. You know, so these are, again, very important muscles when we're talking about hernias as well, um, and, and like core stability and that kind of stuff, even disc injuries, you know. So um, it's just very interesting where this nerve passes through and its innervation patterns. Um, so, and again, like, why not when we're talking about you know all these deep gluteal space issues? Why can we not um, you know experience symptoms that relate to uh, pudendal nerve um, kind of compression? Because again, it's very close to the sciatic uh, sciatic nerve here. Uh, it comes out of the sacral plexus area, so um, anything is possible, right? And finally, the big boy sciatic nerve, motor innervation of the semitendinosus, bicep femoris, semimembranosus, all the hamstrings, ex uh, extensor portion of the adductor magnus and leg and foot musculature. So essentially, um, the guys got a bit kind of sick of listing muscles, so they just decided to kind of go for leg and foot musculature, you know, because the sciatic nerve essentially covers the entire posterior chain, goes all the way down to the back of the knee, splits into the tibial and peroneal or common fibular nerve, whatever you want to call it, goes underneath, uh, you know, the bottom, towards the bottom of the foot and the top of the foot. Essentially, all the symptoms that you have with sciatica, like that kind of lightning type of pain, uh, sharp pain all over the pathway of the nerve, so it could be in the buttock, it could be at uh, top of the hamstrings, middle hamstring, back of the knee, calf, uh, Achilles, top of the foot, drop foot injuries, you know, I'm going to cover that in a separate uh, lecture. All those injuries can essentially be created because of the sciatic nerve being damaged somewhere or compressed somewhere, 
Okay, so all these deep gluteal issues, so the deep gluteal space syndrome or the uh, fibrous band problems we're going to talk about or anything else that we're going to mention can essentially create symptoms of sciatica. This is essentially one of the key points that I need to mention here. Symptoms can overlap and that's something that you should expect. Now that we've finished with the neurological portion of this uh, of this research paper, or it's kind of something that I wanted to add, I want to move down into the uh, examination and symptoms uh, of the deep gluteal syndrome. Okay, so we've kind of uh, and again I've got all this in my notes, so you're gonna you're gonna be able to read as well. So you're gonna be able to read everything that I thought was the most uh, interesting and important personally for me. Uh, obviously, if you read the paper, you can find something more interesting for you. Um, okay, so let's talk about deep gluteal syndrome. So uh, DGS is a underdiagnosed entity characterized by pain and or dysesthesias in the buttock area, hip or posterior thigh and or radicular pain due to a non-discogenic sciatic nerve entrapment of the subgluteal space. I'm saying that again, just so we can kind of go back to the beginning where we uh, talked about the DGS, okay? Now, currently there are many known causes of sciatic nerve entrapment that have nothing to do with piriformis syndrome. This is potentially the main point of this article. So these guys, what they wanted to do is essentially explain to you that not every symptom of sciatica is related to piriformis syndrome if it's not discogenic, okay? Which is uh, which is very interesting okay? because most people when they when they come to to the clinic or whatever, uh, all they know is either they've got sciatica or they've got piriformis syndrome or some of them mix and match the two and they go like I've got sciatica and piriformis syndrome, <laughs> right? So. And what this research paper does is it essentially gives you a lot more guidance as to what other injuries you can have, but it doesn't say, and some, some, someone recently was kind of, uh, had a discussion with someone recently about performance syndrome that it doesn't exist and deep gluteal space is what substitutes it. That's not what this says. This research paper essentially uh, classifies and organizes all these injuries under one umbrella, so the umbrella is going to be DGS, so deep gluteal space. And underneath, you've got performance syndrome, fibrous bands, you know, the uh, gemellic complex or whatever, all these things that we're going to mention later on. So that's how it's classified. And that's how I've put it here as well. So I've got a subtypes, subgroup of DGS, uh, which will be the fibrous and fiber, uh, fiber vascular bands. That's, that'll be like the first out of the four uh, or five conditions that we're going to talk about. The, but the main umbrella is the DGS. Like we said, currently there are many known causes of sciatic nerve entrapments that have nothing, nothing to do with piriformis syndrome, which is actually a subtype of DGS. And this is also something interesting here. In clinical practice, in addition, causes of sciatic nerve entrapments are often overlooked because of the high sensitivity of lumbar spine magnetic resonance MR imaging, so MRI. Uh, it is known that extraspinal sacral plexus and sciatic nerve entrapments may result from a wide variety of extrapelvic within the subluteal space or intrapelvic pathologies. Okay, so all these like symptoms can overlap, but injuries can come from different sources. Clinical examination and symptoms. So the most common symptoms include hip or buttock pain and tenderness in the gluteal and retrotrochanteric region and sciatica-like pain, often unilateral, but sometimes bilateral, exacerbated with rotation of the hip inflection and knee extension. Okay, so what, what do these symptoms uh, remind you of? probably piriformis syndrome, <laughs> or essentially that's something that you would think without having read this information, okay? So the symptoms are essentially going to be very, very, uh, you know, similar here. But again, with the DGS, we're talking about, this is the difference, pain that's specific to the deep gluteal kind of space area. Whereas with the piriformis syndrome, we're potentially talking about pain that's similar, pinpointed around the piriformis muscle, maybe the piriformis itself, like the two ends, so the origin and the insertion, and sciatica-like pain, again, just like with the deep gluteal space, um, you know, going down. What we've got here is intolerance of sitting more than 20 to 30 minutes, which is, again, very, very common. Limping, again, common. And this limping could be because something called drop foot. And again, drop foot will occur due to compression of the sciatic nerve, which can then affect the uh, common fibular nerve, which is a part of the sciatic nerve, which would then affect the muscles that essentially help you dorsiflex your foot or lift your foot up when you're taking a step. So essentially your foot is dragging. 
or limping just in generally because of pain. It doesn't have to be because of drop foot, okay? Disturbed or loss of sensation in the affected extremity, lumbago and pain at night getting better during the day because... So why is the pain at night getting better during the day? Because essentially when, the, when you start moving and this is not a discogenic type of injury, um, the muscles get warmer, the joint becomes a lot more mobile, obviously, and all the fluids, all the blood flow, blood flow starts going and it gets easier for you to move. When you, when you go to bed at night, uh, everything gets cold because the body needs to get cold in order for you to fall asleep, which is interesting. But the body needs to get warm for you to actually wake up and the more, the more you kind of go through your day, the more your body warms up until you reach peak temperature. And at peak temperature, probably around 2, 3 o'clock uh, p.m., we're talking about in the middle of the day, like 1, 2, 3, um, you should, people are, ten, are usually fine. But then as they kind of start to decline, go towards the evening, their body starts to kind of get colder. Um, that's when potentially pain could come back or in the morning when, when, when it's been cold during the night, okay? Um, so other symptoms like, yeah, report by patients. An ontologic position, which basically mean, uh, means a pain-free position, is frequently found uh, and probably probably not found, but like sought, you know, because people look for a position, maybe lying on their side, crossed legs, or like in some sort of a twisted position, which is trying to escape that kind of compression. So that's what this means. There's a couple of tests here that uh, I found in the research that uh, have been essentially, evidently they're the best tests to do uh, and they kind of give you the best results in terms of finding out exactly whether what's going on but the seated performance stretch test is one of them and we've got the active performance test um, performed by a patient pushing the heel down on the table uh, abducting and externally rotating the leg against resistance so both of the tests are active and the seated performance stretch test is a flexion adduction with internal rotation test performed with the patient in the seated position so these are the two tests that uh, have been found to be the best uh, or the most kind of um, they give you the most information for this specific problem, okay? Um, so, uh, as it says here, the active performance and seated performance stretch tests reveal higher sensitivity and specificity for the diagnosis of sciatic nerve entrapment than the other tests, especially when both are using combination. So, if you're a therapist, you might want to look up those two tests and start using them for your patients, just so you can start determining, uh, you know, the DGS and being a bit more specific with um, your, your findings and assessments. And then we're moving on to etiology. So what causes, uh, you know, kind of the different injuries that can occur in the deep gluteal space region, okay? Because the, obviously, essentially all these injuries that we're going to find out here can have symptoms that can relate to DGS. What's interesting here in the etiology, which essentially means cause, uh, multiple orthopedic and non-orthopedic conditions may manifest as a DGS as ADGS means that uh, fibrous and uh, fibrovascular bands can be a DGS, which is a subtype of DGS. Performance syndrome, so I actually got them here. Performance syndrome can be a DGS. Obturator turns can be a DGS. So now we're getting to the potentially the last part of the uh, research lecture here or the, the breakdown. So we're going to talk about some of the different DGS uh, subtypes. Okay, so first of all, we got the fibrous and fibrovascular bands. And again, I've got them in my notes here as well. So starting from uh, subtype number one. Okay, so typically constructing fibrous bands are present in many cases of sciatic nerve entrapment during endo uh, endoscopy. So essentially, what you need to do is look at some of these images here. So Image number one shows you some of the first, like, like the first position of what a fibro, uh, fibrovascular bands, uh, or some of the other types, because there's three different types. Okay, so before we look at these images, let's talk about the different types of uh, the fibrovascular bands or the fibrous bands in general, basically. So you've got fibrovascular bands with vessels macroscopically identifiable by MRN imaging and endoscopy. Um, so essentially creating uh, MRIs and the endoscopy, um, that's procedures, that's how you can discover them. Pure fibrous bands without identifiable macroscopic vessels and pure vascular bands exclusively formed by a vessel without surrounding fibrous tissue. Okay, um, so these are the different types of fi fibrous bands that you can have, and these are the different positions. So I've got them here uh, on the right as well. So you got A and B uh, images. A and B are essentially compressive or bridge type bands, uh, which essentially uh, create compression on the sciatic nerve. So these fibrous bands 
do not attach themselves on the sciatic nerve because the next ones will. Um, so they're so-called adhesive bands. The compressive, all they do is they create compression. So for example, in image A that I've got here, uh, you've got the connections uh, between the ischium and uh, the ileum, for example, up here. And they essentially are putting compression either anteriorly or posteriorly on the sciatic nerve. Okay, so we've got here um, essentially these fibrous bands will limit the movement compressing the nerve from anterior or posterior so type 1a or from posterior to anterior type 1b so from anterior to posterior is going to be this from anterior so the actual band is positioned on the anterior portion of the sciatic nerve which means in front of it and type b the compression is coming from the posterior towards the anterior so the band is positioned on the posterior aspect of the sciatic nerve um, after that, we've got the adhesive bands or horse trap bands, which essentially are the fibrous bands that have one attachment point to the sciatic nerve and another on either the ischium here uh, or the sacrotuberous ligaments. So this is the second image shows the fibrous band essentially pulling the sciatic nerve towards the sacrotuberous ligament. And the first image shows the fibrous band pulling the uh, sciatic nerve towards the uh, ischium. Okay, so this is essentially that type of compression that it creates. Uh, and some of the notes that I've got here, uh, adhesive bands or horse trap bands, which bind strongly to the sciatic nerve structure, anchoring it in a single direction and not allowing it to perform its normal excursion during uh, hip movement. So they're essentially pulling it to the right or left and, and that's, that's about it when it comes to its movement. And finally, we've got the last type of kind of uh, position of these fibrous bands and that is bands anchored to the sciatic nerve with undefined distribution. So the last image is not as easy to make out, but essentially all these kind of, this is the sciatic nerve in between here and all these tissues, the brown that you can see are the fibrous bands that are just kind of um, chaotically spread around it. And these are blood, like this is an, uh, an artery, this is a vein, this is a, these are arteries, uh, okay? So that's what's interesting about the fibrous bands and how they can create uh, symptoms of, um, you know, essentially sciatic nerve compression and that kind of stuff. Now we're getting to the subtype number two or subgroup number two, and that is the performance syndrome. Performance syndrome can be classified as a subgroup of DJS, but not all DJSs are performance syndrome. And it's not necessarily made exactly clear if you ask me, but that's just me, but it doesn't make sense uh, overall. It just, it does give you information on um, essentially what kind of differentiates all these different conditions, okay? Um, now, the potential source of pathology related to performance muscle includes, so we can have three different kind of reasons here or etologies, uh, you know, for this injury. First one, we got hypertrophy or of the performance muscle. So overactive performance, which is very common. Um, asymmetrically enlarged performance muscle with anterior displacements of the sciatic nerve may be a cause of DGS. Overactivity or the hypertrophy of the performance muscle will cause it to enlarge, uh, which will then cause unnecessary compression and a loss of movement and glide of the sciatic nerve. There's a couple of research papers that are linked here, which if, you, if you're reading the, this research paper, you can have a look at it as well, uh, that reveal essentially the specificity and sensitivity in some patients that were used. Um, B, the second uh, etiology here is dynamic static nerve entrapment by the piriformis muscle. So during movements, obviously, some of the movements could potentially place, uh, pl place uh, compression on the sciatic nerve due to the piriformis contracting or something like that. Uh, and finally, uh, anomalous course of the sciatic nerve. And now we're looking at the anatomical variations. If we go back to the beginning of the video where I talked about the six different relations between the sciatic nerve and the piriformis muscle, this is what this means. So these, these are the anatomical variations. So let's quickly go back here on my notes and have a look at the six different positions. So we got sciatic nerve and muscle relation. Number one, sciatic nerve passes below the piriformis muscle. Number two, divided nerve passes through and below the muscle. So some fibers go through, some of them go below. A divided nerve passes above and below this time. Undivided nerve passes through the piriformis, so the whole thing passes through. 
divided nerve passes through and above the muscle and finally a smaller accessory piriformis with its own separate tendon and sciatic nerve uh, passes through the piriformis. So these are the six different uh, anomalous positions or relations of the uh, sciatic nerve. And again, they are repeated here. So the study reported by Beaton and Anson in 1938, essentially with the exception of relationship A, which is a normal course and the B type, uh, essentially the B type uh, piriformis sciatic variation is the most commonly found, like we said, in, uh, based on the research. So the division of sciatic nerve between and below the muscle was the second, uh, the secondly most kind of common one that uh, appeared in the research. The anomaly itself may not always be the etiology of DGS symptoms as some asymptomatic patients present these variations and some symptomatic patients do not. Which means that even though you've got these symptoms, the um, essentially the symptoms of piriformis syndrome or of DGS, let's say, um, some patients may present them, some may not present them. The ones that are not presenting them may have the condition the ones that are presenting them may not have the condition, <laughs> which is interesting. But anyways, that's kind of what was found here. Uh, a subsequent event, such as uh, any etiology reported in this article or prolonged sitting, direct trauma to the gluteal region, prolonged stretching, overuse, pelvic spinal instability or orthopedic conditions may then precipitate uh, sciatic nerve neuropathy. Uh, which means that the sciatic neuropathy or DGS symptoms can be caused by some of these other reasons that we just mentioned, like prolonged stretching or direct trauma or prolonged sitting and that kind of stuff. And then continuing with the Gemelli obturator internus syndrome. Okay, so now we're finally getting to the portion which I actually talked about in the beginning of the video, where um, I promised that we're essentially going to, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you a division and a better understanding of um, how these different muscles that you can find in the subglutes or deep gluteal space, uh, how these muscles can cause, um, you know, different injuries. Because even though there's, it's very difficult, as you're going to learn in a second, to differentiate between each injury without actually going in inside the body uh, via a dissection or endoscopy or different types of procedures. As a therapist, it will be quite hard for you to differentiate between the piriformis syndrome, gemelli obturator internal syndrome. Potentially, the, uh, the next one, the issue of femoral pathology relating to the, uh, the, the cruelis femoris muscle, that could, be, that, that could give us, uh, obviously, more specific um, results results from testing, uh, but the gemelli obturator internal syndrome and the piriformis syndrome could as well be, uh, they can be very, very similar and very difficult to differentiate. Okay, so obturator internus slash gemelli complex pathology is rare. First of all, it doesn't happen very often uh, compared to the other injuries and other pathologies that we got here. Because of its proximity and similarity in both structure and function, most treatments for piriformis syndrome also affect the internal obturator. If you remember, um, we mentioned earlier in the video, around maybe the, the 20th minute or something like that, um, that the sciatic nerve passes through the piriformis uh, and then decides, glides down towards the, um, you know, obturator internus and the gemelli complex, which means that obviously it's very close to it. It can get uh, compressed by them as well as the piriformis, uh, you know, enlargements, overactivity, hypertrophy of the obturator uh, and gemelli uh, muscles can also cause similar function and similar similar kind of uh, injuries to the nerve as well as the piriformis muscle. And that's why this is dynamic compression of the sciatic nerve caused by a stretched or altered dynamic of the obturator internus muscle should be included as a possible diagnosis for DGS. Okay, so um, injury is happening due to the obturator internus or gemelli complex, uh, the gemelli inferior and superior muscles. They could also be uh, a reason for DGS. So the symptoms that you would get with DGS and the symptoms that you would get with performance syndrome will essentially overlap here. Okay, and the reasons they don't mention, so obviously we mentioned for the piriformis syndrome and obviously for the um, DGS as a whole, we mentioned some tests that you can do, right? And there are going to be some tests that you can do for the issue of moral pathology and for hamstring injuries, but there's not really much you can do for the gemelli obturator internal syndrome in terms of testing, okay? So as a therapist, you're a bit limited there. And finally, this is, an, again, a bit of a clarification and it kind of 
repeats what we've already said, but as the sciatic nerve passes under the belly of the piriformis and over the superior gemelli slash obturator internus, a scissor-like effect between the two muscles can be the source of entrapment. Okay, so the compression caused by, you know, the position of the piriformis and of the other muscles, because the, remember, we talked about the different positions of the sciatic nerve, so if we just quickly go back here, we've got the six different positions or anatomical relations. If the nerve is passing underneath the piriformis, as it usually does, um, it obviously kind of behind, it goes behind the piriformis and goes underneath it, or on the front actually, because we're talking about anterior, so the nerve passes anteriorly on the piriformis and then posteriorly uh, on the back of the, uh, you know, superior gemellus, obturator internus, and the inferior gemellus muscles. Um, so essentially kind of hypertrophy of all these, let's say that the piriformis is in hypertrophy or all these three are also in hypertrophy, that could be the reason for that scissor-like effect that we mentioned. And with some of these other injuries as well, that could also happen, you know, so to be honest, all these kind of different anatomical relations could uh, lead to the same effects. It doesn't really matter where the sciatic nerve uh, comes out of because there's always going to be a portion of it uh, being compressed by uh, these muscles if they're in hypertrophy or if there's any kind of tightness or inflammation, right? And then number four, we're moving uh, onto the cross femoris and issue femoral pathology. And again, uh, I've got this in my notes here. So for those of you uh, listening to a podcast or watching the video and you know, in different kind of uh, uh, placements, you'll be able to read the notes. Uh, so subtype four, we're looking for, there we go, QF. I keep saying cross lumborum. I don't know why, because I, I'm kind of used to talking about the QL so much. So just excuse me if I sometimes, if I've done, if I've said lumborum instead of femoris. You know, I think by now you should know which quadrats we're talking about. So, issue of femoral impingement syndrome, or IFI, is an uh, under-recognized form of atypical extra-articular hip impingement defined by hip pain related to narrowing of the space between the ischial tuberosity and the femur. So what atypical means is that this is uh, an injury which is not uh, essentially classified as part of a larger group. And what extra-articular means is that we're trying to describe uh, joint structures which are located outside of a joint. Uh, narrowing of the issue of femoral space leads to muscular tendon and neural changes. So we're talking about narrowing of uh, the space here, basically. So the issue of femoral space is essentially the space between the ischium, which is this. So the issue of tuberosity, where the uh, hamstrings attached, is here, the ischium, and the uh, femur, basically. So the... Uh, medial aspect of the femur. So we've got the uh, cross femoris here. So again, ischium is, th these are the hamstring tendons. So you can see down here. So these white bits, the sciatic nerve, uh, sacrotuberous ligaments and the ischium. So you can see it better on this side, but um, so the ischium and the uh, medial aspect of the, of the femur. So the uh, cross femoris connects the ischium to that uh, femur there. So the space here, that we've got, so you can see without the cross femoris here. This is the space we're talking about. And as you can see, the sciatic nerve passes through the space. So narrowing of the space due to tightness of the cross femoris, pulling the femur in towards the ischium. This is what we're talking about here, right? So uh, this could cause entrapment of the sciatic nerve. It could cause, uh, cause loss of blood flow into the area, which is another one of these injuries that can occur here. And obviously all the symptoms that we've mentioned previously, but obviously the symptoms here are not going to relate to um, specifically buttock pain in, in the central kind of glute area. It will be a little bit more towards the, uh, the bottom where the hamstrings attach. So you can have like uh, loss of function, loss of sensation, um, you know, that kind of numbness type of uh, symptoms uh, due to the compression. Characteristic findings are a decreased issue for moral space compared to healthy controls. So the, obviously the article is going to give you the uh, controls here. So in terms of millimeters and stuff, which is something that if you're interested, you can read uh, on your own. Uh, and altered signals from the cross femoris muscle. So the muscle is not able to send signals to the brain, which means that its con uh, contractile ability is not 100%. Uh, um, which results in edema, swelling, obviously, muscular rupture or atrophy. So the muscle can also go into atrophy because there's not enough blood flow, there's not enough signal going to it due to that entrapments and the decreased space, okay? So that muscle, if it's kind of in that constant, uh, you know, entrapped state, just like any muscle, it will atrophy. So an atrophy in that area could mean that the muscle is essentially not able to contract anymore. So that's constant pressure on the sciatic nerve and all the other uh, blood vessels that you've got uh, around the area. 
The syndrome may occur acutely because of inflammation slash edema or chronically because of fibrous tissue formation that traps the sciatic nerve. So here we're look, linking the issue of femoral pathology to the fibrous bands that we had earlier on in the article. Uh, you know, so, and you can have these uh, fibrous bands anywhere really. So the images that you saw are not the end of it all in terms of location. Um, the clinical assessment of patients with iffy is difficult. <laughs> No, like no surprise there. All of these kind of clinical assessments are difficult uh, because the symptoms are imprecise and may be confused with other lumbar and and or uh, intra or extra articular hip diseases, including deep gluteal syndrome. Patients typically present with mild to moderate nonspecific chronic and sometimes gradually increasing pain in the deep gluteal region. This pain can also be located lateral to the ischium in the groin and or in the center of the buttock. Um, so yes, some of these symptoms can travel. I understand that, but personally for me, potentially the majority of symptoms are probably going to be towards the bottom uh, aspects of the um, of the cross femoris muscle uh, and, and the issue of femoral space. So potentially that could be, I'm just trying to find a way to help you kind of um, try to differentiate between different symptoms, right? Because it's easy to say that all these symptoms can overlap and it's difficult to assess. But maybe if we can grasp on the slightest change and the slightest difference we can make, we can potentially make an assessment for ourselves. But obviously, if you're someone who obviously thinks that a patient of yours has this and they've got very serious symptoms, which means this is a red flag. So you need to pass them on to someone who can perform the procedure uh, and essentially go inside and have a look for themselves and essentially make make the decision what exactly is going on. Is it the piriformis? Is it the gemelli or the obturator muscles? Is it the carotid femoris or the issue of femoral space? You know, which, which DGS is it basically? Which could help you, um, you know, make a better rehab plan because let's, let's think about this in this way. Even though the symptoms with the issue of femoral pathology can be very uh, similar to the other ones that we've mentioned so far, um, the carotid femoris function is slightly different to the function of the obturator internus, gemelli, and the piriformis muscles. So if you remember my um, abbreviations here, so the IRABI uh, abbreviations that I had earlier on, which, me which essentially mean external rotation, uh, abduction, and extension of the hip. When it comes to carotid femoris, we're talking about IRAD. So we've got external rotation, adduction, and no extension. So potentially the rehab plan here is going to include exercises that isolate using resistance bands or uh, literally body weight movements that targets uh, adduction if you think the muscle needs strengthening, which it probably needs, uh, and potentially, um, you know, if you're trying to work on the flexibility of it or the antagonist functions, looking at abduction. So obviously, this is a lot more specific. Personally, for me, whenever if, if someone presents, if, if I have a client and I've sent them to a specialist, they've had a look inside and they come back and say, your, your client has issue from oral pathology, you need to come up with a rehab plan. I'm still going to include all these other functions, all these other actions here anyway. So I'm still going to target the gemellus obturator and piriformis muscle regardless because you don't just want to uh, you don't just want to focus on adduction because the cross morris creates adduction. You also want to focus on the um, antagonist functions of this muscle because every muscle has, uh, you know, agonist and antagonist functions. So a, a muscle is not just, uh, you know, single dimensional. Where it, where it, it doesn't just work in adduction and external rotation. It also has a role when the joint is creating internal rotation and abduction. Because when uh, the joint is creating these movements that the cross femoris isn't actively producing, this means that the cross femoris is actually stretching to allow these movements to occur as well as other muscles. So in a way, you're still passively working on this muscle. So that's why a rehab plan is going to, uh, a rehab plan for all these injuries in the DJS, uh, you know, kind of umbrella, all these subtypes and subgroups is going to be very similar, really. Um, because you'll be targeting all these movements and their antagonist movements. And just quickly uh, on the tests, like I said, so the issue of pathology luckily has a couple of tests that could potentially help you differentiate uh, it from the other uh, injuries. So the specific physical exam examination tests included the long stride walking test and the IFI test. So again, there's a couple of research papers here that are linked so you can have a look at in your own time in, in regards to the IFI test and some of the other tests that could relate to this. And the injection test of the issue of 
tomorrow space, IFS has both a diagnostic and therapeutic function. Endoscopic decompression of the IFS appears useful in improving function and diminishing hip pain in patients with iffy, but conservative treatment is always the first step in the treatment algorithm. So obviously, um, you know, looking for ways to avoid uh, endoscopy and kind of any kind of surgeries, that's common sense, I think. And finally, we're going to finish off the uh, lecture uh, with the hamstring conditions. So now here, there's so many things that can happen, and obviously we're gonna I'm gonna list some of them uh, and via the article. So the sciatic nerve can be affected by a wide spectrum of hamstring origin uh, intisiopathies appearing either isolated or in combination. What intisiopathy means is essentially a condition involving uh, the tendon or attachment point, uh, attachment bone of, uh, you know, that essentially causes the injury. So with hamstrings, we're talking about the ischial tuberosity, where you can have different types of injuries like a, a partial or complete hamstring strain, acute, recurrent or chronic, tendon and detachment, avulsion fractures. So again, we mentioned you can essentially, the bone, pieces of bone can come off when you have like an avulsion fracture, which is quite nasty of actually. I've, I've had I've worked with people like that. Apophysitis, which essentially uh, means uh, Severs disease. You can have a look at that separately and learn more about it. Uh, Non-united apophysis, proximal tendinopathy, calcifying tendinitis. So things that can happen when it comes to the hamstrings. There's a couple of research papers that have been attached here. Um, but I personally think that the hamstring-related injuries are going to be different um, to the other ones that we've said. And that's why, to be honest, there's not as much information when it comes here because uh, if you remember, when we're talking about deep gluteal space, we're talking about the cuirass femoris, inferior gemellus, obturator internus, superior gemellus, and piriformis muscles. We're not really mentioning the hamstring as much. So that's not they're not really a part of the... Um, deep gluteal space, even though some of the symptoms could overlap. So if you've got, for example, um, you know, some sort of an injury here where you've got the hamstring tendons attaching, uh, that's very close to the cross femoris or the ischial femoral space, right? So symptoms could overlap because of the proximity and entrapment. So again, scissor-like effect, because if the, if the sciatic nerve comes uh, uh, on the anterior aspect of the performance, on the posterior aspect of the obturator and gemelli complex and the cross femoris, it then goes on to the anterior aspect of the hamstrings because it kind of goes underneath, like here, in between. So scissor-like effect between the hamstrings and the cross femoris, that could be another reason for entrapment, which is interesting here. And obviously all the other hamstring injuries. Now, the hamstrings are a topic which is separate. I think I'm, it's better off me covering the ham, different hamstring injuries, like the ones we mentioned here, in a separate lecture, because it's going to probably take us a long time to do it. Uh, but it's obviously, it's worth mentioning here because symptoms could overlap. Now, as a means to finish off the lecture, I just wanted to kind of finish off the actual um, article and just tell you what else you can expect from it. I'm not going to cover it because now we're talking about surgical technique and endoscopic anatomy, which is things that personally for me, yes, they are interesting, but I'm not really going to be using this. Uh, and uh, maybe most of you won't. And if you want to learn more about it, you can obviously read uh, through the article it, uh, itself and learn more about these different types of surgical techniques that you've got here. Okay. So again, um, this has been a great, uh, a very interesting article and I really enjoyed kind of going through it. And I think that me going through it and making these notes, which, like I said, you're going to get access to. Uh, it really helps me um, learn about these things and kind of brush upon things that I could have forgotten, maybe, uh, and really consolidates, um, you know, all this information. So it's a great way to learn and it's a great way for me to share some knowledge with you guys. Obviously, you can find this in the form of a podcast in Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, and all these different kind of platforms. Uh, you're also going to find a portion of it uh, on YouTube. The main version of the video with everything will be in the um, bulletproof um, courses so um, which this, this specific lecture will be in the back spine and hips because it's relating to those areas so um, hopefully this has been informative if you're watching as a member and uh, I look forward to seeing you in the next episode